Hello and welcome to episode 80 of For Christ's Sake Anakin. I'm your host Matthew Neugebauer coming to you on this June 1st, 2021. It is the Tuesday after Trinity Sunday if you're counting. Yes, it's June. The sun is mostly out. The weather is mostly warm. And uh, we are back to ramping up to uh, the second wave of High Republic novels. Not that kind of second wave. The third wave here in Ontario is going down, thankfully. But yes, this is returning to its roots as a High Republic podcast now. That uh, that content is coming out soon. But first, we got to get to the pull list. And uh, we got, this past week, we had two issues of the War of the Bounty Hunters preludes come out. The uh, Vader issue and the Afra issue. And both of those, as the other ones uh, that have come out so far, wrapping up the storylines previously. And these two, I mean, it raises the question, does that feel rushed for those storylines? Or does a good transition into what comes next? And I think in the, the case of these two, both with Vader and with Afra, they do flow naturally. With the actual Bounty Hunters one itself, I said last week, didn't seem to make much sense. But with Vader, it's still, for him, all about what is his motivation regarding Luke? What is he going to do and how is he going to respond the next time he encounters him? And so how does that then tie into this search for Han and Han Frozen and Carbonite? With Afra, they don't even mention the whole thing with Han and Carbonite, but it's implied wrapping up the previous storyline, uh, getting this High Republic era engine for... for a certain Domina tag, and uh, yeah, it, both in this case as well, those storylines could have dragged on uh, with Vader on Exegol, for example. Vader, he had already re- coming returned from Exegol. Afra with uh, Tag's competitor, and Vukora from the Unbroken Clan. All these characters that are coming in and culminating on this race to actually get Han uh, and either get the bounty to Jabba or uh, in, in Vader's case do something else and lure Luke into a trap in order to confront him on Vader's terms of course we know that none of that ends up happening that Luke or that Han or Boba eventually gets him back and is able to bring bring him to Jabba and get the bounty Vader, we know, of course, encounters Luke on Endor. And uh, well, so what's interesting then to see is, I use that phrase a lot, what's interesting to see. I'll be curious to see how this affects those characters, those motivations. It is a little curious, uh, sorry, I should say how it affects those characters and motivations when they encounter, we encounter them again in Return of the Jedi. It is a little curious that... Um, this period between Empire and uh, Return of the Jedi, or the period leading up to Return of the Jedi, is now all about the search for Han Solo and uh, trying to get him and the bounty and all that to Jabba. Or, or, or where, whatever the different characters' motivations are. It's become about that now, which I was kind of mixed on because... I'm always kind of mixed on Han as a character. And so to make him the focus here. 
but I thought about it, and I think it makes sense. I mean, they're going to do it. They're doing it in a classic Marvel summer crossover, <laughs> but but for Star Wars, which is different. And um, that's going to be a, an interesting, good, coherent story that continues into the first half. Not just the first act, but all the way to the first half of Return of the Jedi. So it does make sense that so much of that film, which is such a pillar in the the Skywalker saga, that uh, the 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 gravity. I talk about gravity, narrative gravity, converging on the rescue of Han Solo, and so I, I I'm sold on that again. Especially since they did spend a good number amount of time in the comics dwelling on the aftermath of Empire Strikes Back. Another thing to say is, you know, this is one thing that a lot of the characters are involved in in the comic story. They can have other media. I don't know if there is much. I don't think there's much done in terms of novels. Certainly not in terms of animation or TV shows looking at this time period. But we know that that's going to happen too eventually. We know that there, someone's going to want to write a novel about something Leia was up to at this time. That's going to sit alongside these comics. Leia, for example, I brought up as an example. That'll sit alongside these comics. It'll probably, knowing the way canon is going, it'll probably contradict it a little bit. But, you know, we, we've come to accept that. Uh, I'm starting to make my peace with it. So for for now, this is what we got. We got this War of the Bounty Hunters crossover that is starting to really ramp up. A lot of the the authors are on board, the writers are on board, the art is on board. And by on board, I mean really buying into the story that they all together are telling. And under the leadership of a certain Charles Sewell, right? And among other writers as well. But um, that's what we're seeing with Star Wars. Is, at least in the publication front, it is an interesting convergence where we have War of the Bounty Hunters and we have High Republic. And the fact that uh, they're both these coordinated, coherent storytelling. And of course, that's what a crossover does for comics. But you can tell they are talking about it together there probably is another slack channel for war of the bounty hunters just like there is for high republic so i'm excited it, it feeds my juices my canon junkie juices and uh yeah looking forward to how they continue the story getting me more invested in this underworld that isn't mainly my thing but that's a nice contrast then to high republic and to uh to uh, the Bad Batch as well. Uh, all all three areas of Star Wars, you know, the, the Jedi history, a commando clone unit that is probably going to connect with the Rebellion at some point. The Rebellion itself later on engaging with the, the Underworld <laughs> because Han is being taken into the Underworld, captured by the Underworld. So... Uh, it's, it's, again, an interesting, almost with J.J. Abrams' comments about having a plan and um, 
plotting things out and coordinating in the back of my mind. And that isn't to say anything about, about JJ. I've said too much about him already, but it's, it's good to see that they're coordinating and trying to be coherent. All right. So our main topic today then is this question, getting back into the high Republic. When does the high Republic era start? When does it end? And this was brought up initially by an episode of the Star Wars Underworld in late May. And it was in response to a, a, a fan question that was sent into them. I'll link the show in my show notes here and, and give some t- timestamps for it. Uh, the question was about the show, uh, Leslie Headland's show, The Acolyte, which we know Kathleen Kennedy said is going to be set at the end of the High Republic or after the High Republic era. And that question had to do with who might show up. Will we, will we see Dooku? Will we see Qui-Gon? Even Mace Windu? Um, and the question of Dooku is relevant because, uh, as we'll see, it, talk, it, it deals with timing. And I'll, and I'll go into that a little more shortly. Where the, the Star Wars Underworld discussion, where that went to, uh, Chris Siegel himself ra- then raised the question, well, when does the High Republic end? When does it start? When does it end? And when and often, as is my idiom, when something comes up in that show, I do I take to Twitter and uh, chime in my two cents there. This time, I actually end up doing a whole thread going into, yeah, when does the High Republic end? And it raises the, another question. How do we know when an era begins or ends, especially when we're in the middle of an era uh, or, or even when we're not? Like just when we look at history, how do we know that was an era and then that era ended and started a new era and then there's another era? And, you know, the short answer, of course, is that we, we don't really know when we're in the middle of an era. The only time, the only way to really tell that is historians decades centuries later looking back and saying okay well that characterized that time and we can look at those things that happen but it's really never defined again by the people in that era so you you'll never see people in universe during the high republic call it the high republic it's just the republic and it's just the jedi the only references to high republic we get are in dooku jedi lost is the first uh, reference we get by kevin scott by the way (laughs) we get references in in comics i mentioned that the afro comic in the ongoing star wars comic and other places that our, our characters looking back and say okay that had been defined by the time of the Skywalker saga and around there as the time of the High Republic. Even, and this is interesting, even during the time of the Empire and the Rebellion, they still call it the High Republic, which they look back and they say, look, the High Republic is at its height. And yet what we know and what we think here is and I've said this many times before, it's really the beginning of the end of the Republic. 
It's a time when they, they expanded and then the bubble burst. And so it is a bit of a curious thing. It might be even an ironic thing that's called High Republic. But, you know, what we do know is it, it is a period of expansion, of optimism, at least in terms of the Republic or the, the, the Chancellor and the Senate and the Jedi. What I think we're going to see, and I've said this again a few times, and coming up into this second wave of storytelling with the Republic Fair, is it's an area of colonialism. And that's, uh, <laughs> that's a very tangible relevant term right now especially here in Canada as we've come face to face with the darkest aspect of colonialism and empire with the 215 children the the, the bodies in the burial or the, the the mass grave of those 215 children who died in, uh, indigenous children who were at a residential school and that's what colonialism looks like to indigenous peoples. I don't know how dark they're going to go in the High Republic, but what is interesting to see there is, uh, you know, you know, Star Wars is a story of, at least in the original trilogy, it's a story of an empire brazenly taking uh, th this what this planet killer called the death star and looming it over a planet and saying you will submit or else what's uh, important to note now then is for canada for the successors of the british empire we are the empire we were the empire even before we called it an empire even before it was called canada it was called an empire but that was lauded as a, a confident, optimistic term that the sun will never set on the British Empire. And yes, there are gains there, you know, commerce, freedoms, you know, economic rights. A lot of the, the liberal um, human rights that we cherished, a lot of that did come from the spread of the British Empire. A lot of indigenous Christians say they're grateful for the gospel and for scripture and for faith. But, you know, it's a question of them moving beyond it being held as an imperial possession. The Christian faith is not an imperial possession. And what I'm wondering is, uh, you know, this is in the High Republic. It's so linked to being, the belief in the Force is so linked to being a Jedi Republic possession. Are they going to wrestle with those ambiguities? Because even in the High Republic, the Death Star, the shadow of the Death Star looms over. Yes, the Empire claims that it isn't the Republic, but the Republic really is the Empire. And this is the first time we're going to see that. Um, in this detail, in this level of detail, I think we have explored colonialism, Ahsoka, the Ahsoka novel, for example, rebels, everything going on on Lothal. 
I mean, even with Alderaan, there is uh, an exploration of consolidation, imperial consolidation, an exploration of colonial consolidation, extraction of resources, and exploitation. But really, this Republic Fair and Starlight Beacon, which has a lot of good going for it, and people look to it as a source of hope and prosperity, is it at least their arrogance, the Republican Jedi arrogance, that leads to this great disaster that we think is a great disaster with great hyperspace disaster. What if there's an even greater disaster in that when Darth Sidious is able to claim that the Jedi have taken over and have destroyed, tried to destroy democracy, that people actually believe him. So that's the excursus about when, you know, the High Republic never ends, it doesn't end, why is it called the High Republic? It becomes the Empire. But there is a sense of this was an era, and it is no longer an era. And that is connected to specifically the optimism and hope and positive influence that the Jedi and the Republic, as together the guardians of peace and justice, you know, that is something that marks this High Republic era. And so that is uh, something that we, you know, we can point to because you know, in our real world history, you know, the the, uh, the era, the Western analogs, at least in Western history, analogs that come to mind are, for example, the Renaissance and the Reformation, specifically the Reformation and this thing we call the modern era. We knew it was a thing that happened. There are things that characterized it. And I should say there are things now we can say that characterize our digital era or our post-modern era, whatever, post-critical, whatever era. We can't really give it a name, right? That's my difficulty in giving it a name to say historians are going to have to do that. But we know that there are that were there were significant events. I say it's significant because they are signifiers when it comes to the Reformation and modernity that uh, we can point to and say, okay, these were signs that this is happening. Yeah, for example, the things that come to mind, Luther's 95 Theses and the Council of Trent and the Thirty Years' War and the peace at Augsburg and the peace at Westphalia. These are these things that marked a shift in how Western European powers, Western European people, understood themselves in relationship to each other. And when especially with Luther and Council of Trent, in relationship to each other before God. So Luther's 95 Theses, he's able to openly critique the, ex the excesses of the sale of indulgences and the theology underneath it, namely the, the exaggerated belief in purgatory and how uh, you, you can pay to end your time in purgatory the power of clergy to di dictate, and the power of the papacy to dictate who is in, who is out, 
who is saved. The Council of Trent, responding to that, curbing a lot of those excesses, saying, okay, yeah, we need to be able to actually at least make, make our liturgy more accessible, more understandable to people. But what they also did was become more institutionalized and say, we need to be organized. Here's the, here's the thing with the Council of Trent. We need to be organized, and that leads to being more institutionalized. We need to be, have more clear lines of discipline, but that leads to things become more, more centralized. And things that maybe they meant well with good intentions, leading to a very mixed bag. And that is just how history works. Now, here's my point about signifiers, though, is these don't think things don't really cause the great epochal, sh epochal shifts, great shift in epoch and era. These are things that signify that these events are, th this shift is already well underway. Luther would be the first to tell you that he did not get his ideas and beliefs out of nothing. He didn't wake up one day. You know, there is part of the story where he's praying and God shows him this is what he's to do and how he's to be and what he's to say. But I think he'd be the first to tell you, you know, this comes from Erasmus and this comes from me reading Augustine and the New Testament and that, you know, returning to that, the fact that he thinks that this is the thing he's supposed to do. I mean, the 95 Theses, that's just how an academic debate was started in medieval Europe. You put your theses out and say, these are the things I want to debate. And I, as a professor, have the standing to do this. It's just that they were so radical and so cut to the heart of medieval Catholic belief that they caused controversy and wider controversy than even he anticipated. anticipated. But even that in itself, the fact that it caused all that controversy, was the church questioning itself and saying, what do we believe? What do we think about these things? The fact that so many people followed him, so many uh, even went beyond him, even to, to starting the war. And, and I'm glossing over history very broadly. My point being... Uh, there were other movements, other things happening. Part of this story is the emerging idea of a nation state. And so a lot of the northern German princes joining in Luther's reform, mainly because, in part because they really did believe what he was saying, but mainly, be, but also because they wanted to be free of the papacy and consolidate power into their own kingdoms and their own electorates. That just is what it is. But you know, to point to the door of Wittenberg, that's almost just a symbol, a sign of this change being underway. Just like the Council of Trent. Just like Starlight Beacon. Starlight Beacon, you know, didn't come, the idea for it doesn't come out of nowhere. Chancellor So looks at the relative peace in the galaxy. The relative peace, at least in their section of the galaxy in the Republic. This is me kind of speculating a little bit. But 
it's it's pretty clear that this makes sense to me at least. And she says, okay, let's expand out. Let's grow our resources and grow our family as a republic. Let's move out. And what we need to do that is better communication. We need a home base. We have this symbol that uh, was explored in, in Claudia Gray's novel of these two planets that were at war and now because of the intervention of the Jedi are at peace. And that was a bit of a bungled intervention as we read. But, you know, let's put this beacon right in the middle of these two planets as a sign that this, uh, this expansion is happening. And this optimism is happening. But there's also the underbelly, right? Again, the the Thirty Years' War and the religious violence that ensues after the Reformation and during the Reformation. There is the great hyperspace disaster. And, uh, <laughs> you know, again, we don't know what the significance of that is, but clearly... It's a, it says that the Jedi aren't invincible. And hyperspace isn't an invincible technology. There are, are the Nihil and there are the Drengir. They are these very real threats to what the Jedi and the Republic are seeking to do. So that's this beginning of this era of the High Republic. Another thing, this really got my juices going. And this came up in... The uh, it came up in the Star Wars Underworld episode. It it came up more recently on Instagram. Instagram user Fulcrum Intelligence uh, noticed, and something I think that seems fairly apparent to me is that in Kevin Scott's Duke of Jedi Lost, he mentions the Lost Nineteen, and he mentions a Master Trennis as the nineteenth Master who departs from the Jedi Order. And for a master to depart, that's a big deal, right? For a Padawan to wash out, for a knight to have questions or whatnot, and go rogue, you know, that's not not an order-defining event. For a master to leave, you know, there again, in the millennia-long history of the Jedi, there had only been 18 up until that point. Then with Dooku, 20 up until that point. That signifies a great moment of vulnerability. A great moment of um, the Jedi may have lost their way. Or it signifies you know, maybe too much rigidity on the part of the Order. Leading someone to say, I need to go and do this in order to be authentic to the Force. It's a schism. In a similar way as you know, a bishop leaving. I mean, that's how you define a schism. Is when a bishop leaves the communion. Right? So what I'm wondering is one of the main signifiers of the High Republic era is uh, these two poles. Right? Keeve Trennis' departure and Dooku's departure. Now, what we, we saw with Keith Trennis, the Fulcrum Intelligence pointed this out. Kevin Scott, of course, uh, re-blog, retweeted that, re 
shared that in his story and, he, and in interviews subsequently or before he said, we know where her story ends. We know, we don't know where, if it's going to be in the comic or in a novel sometime down the line when Keeve is made a master and after she's made a master that uh, she's going to leave. <laughs> and we don't know what those circumstances are. I can see it being more sympathetic than Dooku leaving. I think with Dooku, it was, he wants to go and take over his family fortune. And of course he becomes a Sith Lord <laughs> and, and whatnot. But with Keeve, I think it's going to be really a sign of the consequences of this Jedi, era of Jedi expansion. The beginning of the end. She's being portrayed in this comic as a very sympathetic character. Again, more than Dooku. She's portrayed as someone who cares deeply about the Order. She's a very freshly minted knight. She's young. She's, but she's intelligent and capable. Um, you know, she is witnessing her master, former master, Skier, being taken over by the Drengir. And who knows how that's going to affect her. You know, there, there's going to be a reckoning, and she's going to signify a reckoning with the identity of the Jedi and what it means for them to, you know, to to be expansionary, but at what cost? So I I think that's going to be the real signifier, one of the real signifiers. And then I mentioned Dooku, and it's interesting. I mean, these both these stories are written by Kevin Scott, and that wasn't that was on purpose. That wasn't an accident. He's studied real world religion, real world history. He could tell you about the. I gather he could tell you about the history of the Reformation. He studied not just Western religions but other religions as well. There are signifiers of the end of an era. Right. We know we are no longer in the modern era. Right. We don't take for granted the nation state in uh, as the primary unit of human community. We're in a much more globalized era. There are things we can point to now. There are things we just like things that we can point to about the modern era and you know the the growth of of a more limited form of capitalism. The growth of again, I mentioned human rights, civil rights. Uh, at least the assumptions of it, it they still aren't. Uh, the prom those promises still aren't carried out. But the idea of basic human rights enshrined in law, in constitutional law, emerged in the modern era. Right in the middle of the modern era, we have these two great revolutions, the American, the French Revolution and the American Revolution. And the American Revolution enshrines in their constitution, the American Republic enshrines in their constitution, these rights limiting what Congress can do. And saying, the individual has the right to this and the right to that, because by implication, they say Congress shall not pass a law. The Canadian version of that are positive rights. Every Canadian has the right to 
this, that, and the other. Freedom of religions, freedom of speech, freedom of assembly. Of course, that comes at the end of the modern era. This comes past the end of the modern era in 1982. But these are things that have been developed throughout the 20th century as well. We don't, even now, we see that just these uh, formal rights are, are limited. We need to look at substantive rights, and we're in an era of more pursuing more substantive equality. I mentioned with the living condition, or I, I alluded to the living conditions of indigenous communities in Canada. We still are reckoning with and grappling with the legacy of the residential schools and knowing that we can enshrine rights in our constitution all we want, we need to actually act and positively build communities of sustainability and justice and equal access. You know, the fact that we're still debating whether or not healthcare is a human right in our society. In Canada, not so much, but still that debate is still there. Anyway, that's still a bit of an ongoing thing. It says we no longer take up the assumptions of the modern era because we can point to signifiers of events that happen. And I remember just going, reaching back into my undergrad, Carl Polanyi, uh, The Great Transformation, seminal 20th century text in economics. He points to... Yes, World War II, the great undoing of kind of proper, the assumption of proper upstanding Christendom society. The, the veneer is stripped away, the foundations get torn down, literally torn down, get bombed by both allies and Nazis. We see in the Nazis just how evil humans can be. But Polanyi points really to the Great Depression. And part of the, that could be his, his economic bias. But really it points to the fact that we finally started to question whether or not a free market can actually uh, sustain us and sustain our society and provide for us. Now, we continue to question that question. We continue to put too much faith in a free market, or we continue to just say, well, that's partly the way the world is run. We need to learn to live in it. You know, I, of course, am part of the society, so, you know, I'm living in the free market as well, quote unquote free. We question whether or not it's free, even, I should say. But that comes from the fact that we had a Great Depression. That, well, not comes from. The Great Depression is the signifier that that market, when it's overtaxed, right? We had the Great Recession in 2008. I'm talking about the Great Depression in 1929. Great Recession in 2008. Again, bring us face to face with the limits of our assumptions. Because these dynamics were already ongoing. There are already these protest movements outside of this, this uh, you know, I want to say mainstream 
centrist consensus. BLM, COVID, really bringing to the fore those limits of a centrist consensus and saying, okay, we're far more polarized now. We no longer believe that governments and especially corporations, but governments can protect the rights of all and the well-being of all and the welfare of all. And so, you know, the, the rise of this new left that is really seeking a globalized society and greater integration, greater attention to the suffering of those who have been ignored. That's, that's relatively new. I mean, one of the biggest signifiers in the last, you know, of, of the end of the modern era. First of all, you notice how fuzzy this is, right? Is it the Great Depression, the World Wars, uh, COVID, the Great, the Great Recession? One of the biggest signifiers uh, of the end of the modern era was 9-11. Here you have a non-state actor waging war on a nation state and, and having the power to bring a major symbolic defeat right at the heart of what this nation state cares about and believes in. Now, that nation state, state actors, that's a very Western concept. It's very much a, again, a modern Western Westphalia Augsburg concept that we saw, you know, World War One. Polanyi. Part of Polanyi's argument is, you know, World War One, World War Two, Great Depression saw, or, or or what exposed is the limits of the way drawing, carving up a map in terms of these national tectonic plates that everyone just does their own thing. It doesn't work. We are way too interconnected, such that a crash on Wall Street in 1929 can affect the whole world okay world war one world war two family feuds in central europe can affect and i mean a megalomaniac trying to take over the world that can affect the whole world and everyone gets drawn into that conflict 9-11 you know the rise of using the internet to communicate that CNN broadcasting images across the world. Even now, the fact that a disease may have accidentally uh, came about by someone eating a bat in China somewhere. And I'm not blaming anyone for it. I'm just saying that's affected the whole world. We are so clearly interconnected. Yeah. When did that happen? How did that start? People have written massive historical books, history books on it. You know, these signifiers just demonstrate that this is a different era and a different shift, a shifted era. What we see in, in Dooku Jedi Lost, what we might see in the Acolyte, is another Jedi Master leaving the Order. And again, I mentioned how significant that is. Dooku leaving the Order signifies to the Jedi that they no longer have sway 
over the loves of the galaxy. What I mean by that is a master, and if a master does it again, it's saying there's means there's lots of others who think his way. If a master can leave and go take over the family business and take over the family wealth, it means that attitudes and shifts, attitudes in the galaxy are shifting back towards or towards another source of hope and prosperity. And it isn't the Republic and the Jedi. It's the the Count of Sereno and the Separatists and the Sith. <laughs> and, you know, I mean, not the Sith yet, because here's the thing. I think you know, Dooku leaves. I think Sidious sees that and says, oh, this is uh, this is time that if a master can leave, I got to go to this guy. I see he must be powerful. I know he's the greatest swordsman in the order. Wise, well-respected. If he can go, it must be time the cracks are there. Of course, there are other things that Palpatine looks at, other signs connected to the fact that the Jedi have just retreated to the temple. But he is, I mean, the thing about Palatine is he's a great student of history. He can see the trends. He can see the events. I've, I've mentioned before about, in our world, the, the end of Christendom. Christendom is, of course, Western Christendom is, of course, part of the modern era in its own way. And its own, it's, uh, its own aspect of it in that you know, churches being instruments and organs of the nation state and sitting alongside temporal and spiritual needs, sitting alongside with each other very comfortably. And now we have a widespread loss of confidence in churches to really speak good news. A widespread loss of confidence in churches to speak a message that inspires the loves of a society. It's interesting, you know, Biden, he's okay. His inaugural address, he quotes Augustine and the, the whole idea of the loves of, of a society. It's very Augustinian. Augustine's point is for God to actually be the one to inspire those loves. Biden said, well, the loves of America just are what they are. Their freedom and prosperity whatever we, we make of them as, right? I've talked about, I can point to declining church attendance. And, you know, we have this date here in the Anglican Church of Canada. We have the year 2040, whatever that means in terms of, I mean, whatever it means actually in terms of how we actually will be. What it, the calculation is that by 2040, if we go along the way we are, no one will be in our churches or our pews or we'll run out of money, <laughs> all that. That's a signifier that we have to stop and reinvent and reflect that the era is over. Now, again, I, I pointed to more positive things about that, point to negative things about that. 
you know, the, this discussion isn't so much, I mean, it's not value neutral because nothing's value neutral, but it raises this question. Let me come back to it. Let's answer. When does the High Republic start? When does the High Republic era end? I do very much think that the Lost 19 and the Lost 20, or the 19th and the 20th, are these poles between at least yeah maybe i can say the poles that really signify i don't know is does that signify the high republic does that signify the downward trajectory to use dominic's phrase in uh, the star wars underworld uh, podcast there's a trajectory here i wonder again high republic it's nostalgic it's ironic in some ways it's meaningful it is a time of great hope great unity great prosperity but also again something that has the death star and the shadow of the star looming over it because the republic is the empire and this is where the empire begins so this has been episode 80 of For Christ's Sake, Anakin. Again, a fuzzier question. A fuzzier answer because it's a fuzzy question. But something we can definitely continue to think about. If you have your two cents you want to chime in, please do on Twitter at NEUG485. And check me out on Instagram at MNEUG1138. And my church blog, which has a nice new redesign, luminous-beings.com. Thanks for listening. May the Force be with you always.